You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and Canacurious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. The State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Tuesday, February 8th, 2022. This is episode number 211. I'm Susan Sores, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour, author of the children's book, What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis's Favorite Grandma, aka Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast or watching on the YouTube channel, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Clubhouse. Join us and over 25,000 State of Cannabis News members if you want to be an audience participant participant. Otherwise, please subscribe to support our show. And by the way, if you're not following me, please do that today because I've been stuck at 9.9K forever. Please help me get to 10,000. I'll never ask for it again. Today, we are talking about Oklahoma is not okay. Activists to gather in Long Beach to protest taxes. A deeper dive into Weed Map's play at the Super Bowl ad. Colorado employees in cannabis use. A possible breakthrough on detecting impairment. Spain starts cultivating. A woman, a woman is tricked into believing she was a DEA agent. And many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the guy. But we really do love and appreciate our audience participation, so if you're where the story is, please feel free to raise your hands. Kicking off the show today is Nicole West. She is a cannabis business specialist, part-time firefighter and cat herder, and director of operations at LB Atlantis, a veteran in the cannabis industry and always ready to use her experience to help others. The show wouldn't be what it is today without her expert guidance. Nicole, what are we talking about today? Well, I am so excited about my headline today because it's literally woman on the street information as I have been a part of, I was able to be a part of a bonfire on Sunday. That was the beginning part of this process in regards to Long Beach Cannabis Tax Reform Rally. My headline today comes out of patch.com and it is Long Beach Rise Up. Cannabis Tax Reform Now. Um, Long Beach Rise Up. The Cannabis Tax Reform Now is a rally and press conference that will bring together supporters, workers, and advocates of the legal cannabis industry to lift up their voices and send a message to Sacramento lawmakers to act immediately to lower taxes on the legal cannabis industry. The rally is set to take place after a statewide virtual press conference with the Save California Cannabis Coalition, which will feature elected officials, patients, and industry leaders throughout California. Attendees 
attendees at the conference will then lead a march down Ocean Boulevard to make their voices heard on cannabis tax reform. A coalition of local Long Beach cannabis community advocates are set to speak truth. Tamika Boyce, Elliot Lewis, Sean Kiernan, Brett Fieldman, uh, with words from their patients, cultivators and growers, and union leaders, distributors, and retail a Vice News episode recently aired that showcased what many are saying for years. The cannabis industry in California is overtaxed, overregulated, and undersupported. The state's unfair and unreasonable cannabis tax structure imposes exceedingly high taxes that make profit margins slim and have stunted small business growth and impacted access to patients and consumers. The bipartisan business growth is a bipartisan failure of the state government to address this issue of access for consumers and crippling the state's taxes has handicapped the legal cannabis market. This has created a situation where illegal cannabis has filled the gaps, controls the market, and while paying no taxes, Sacramento legislatures need to do what Prop 64 was intended to do, provide safe access to quali uh, quality products, create good union jobs, and create economic prosperity by fueling a new tax revenue and residents of all cities that supported cannabis legalization in California. Throughout our collective actions, we will be educating awareness and pushing legislatures to act immediately to save the industry on the brink of collapse. Now, I will say that me, uh, my company at LB Atlantis has offered everybody to take the time necessary if they'd like to go participate in this, and I highly recommend any of the businesses throughout the city of Long Beach at the very least and other places, please be participatory in this. Um, and we actually do have uh, Elliot Lewis up from the audience. Elliot is actually uh, the founder of Catalyst, or founder and CEO of Catalyst, and one of the people that will be speaking and kind of bringing together this voice here in Long Beach tomorrow. Um, really excited to hear what you have to say about this, Elliot. Uh, please, uh, if you could, give us some insight on what's going on tomorrow. And you guys can hear me? Yeah. Yes, sir. All right. I got it right. Yeah, look, I mean, we're going to try to, I am maybe going to say just a couple of words. We're going to really try to, everybody's heard too much from me. So we're going to try to focus on, you know, who these bad policies are really hurting. So we have a great lineup. Uh, going to kick off uh, Sean from Weed from Warriors, who I'm sure you're all familiar with. Brett for Wonder Brett. Tamika Voice, who's the only social equity applicant. Uh, to maneuver her way all the way through the Long Beach system to date. Just super inspiring story. We got uh, an expungement person there, some workers. I even dragged one of the UFC reps uh, there. I wonder if I'll let, he'll let me, uh, let me catch him on camera with me, but that's a different story. Um, and look, there's a statewide thing going on, and you know we just want to turn out locally. They're doing a little digital thing. There's a bunch of bills floating around. Um, obviously we know the policy is horrible for all of those reasons and that we're really on the brink here and prop 64 is a failure. So city hall, um, at, uh, you know, 12 o'clock is really when it kicks off and we're going to start getting ready to like 11 o'clock, the online things from 11 to 12, uh, great speakers. If we get enough people, uh, we're going to cause a little ruckus, do a March, bring your bullhorns, your loud voices, uh, Molotov cocktails. I don't condone, but uh, let's make a little noise and see if they can hear us in uh, Sacramento. Thank you, Elliot. Bring your uh, extra can fresh cannabis leaves if you've got them. I do love me a good protest. I can't wait. Um, this is such a, a issue that I really care a lot about. The farmers are our friends. Who's going? Let's meet up tomorrow. 
and who's got the Molotov cocktail. Holy shit, that was no. incredible. But um, no. also, uh, at 11 a.m. <laughs> joking, by the way, joking for the record. No, yeah, no Molotov cocktails, please. Um, but tomorrow at 11 a.m., it starts with some sign making. So if you don't have a sign or have not made a sign, get there at 11, and there will be some sign making supplies there available. Just for the record, Molotov cocktail is a brand new strain of cannabis that is super fucking Of fire. course it is. <laughs> Fuck. It must be outdoor. Uh, <laughs> come on, guys. When is somebody going to name a strain happiness, please? <laughs> happiness don't sell, Susan. Controversy. <laughs> oh, in case anybody was confused, there will not be burning of weed at this protest. That was Sunday. I will be burning when- some weed. I mean, that's your choice, Susan, but we won't have a big pile of it this time. For the record, we can neither confirm nor deny that that was cannabis that was burnt. It could have been hemp. We don't know. But uh, some stuff got burnt. I can't confirm how it got dropped there or what it was exactly. But uh, just a little showmanship before the round. Just to make, just to, just to make Jason Beck happy, Elliot, can you please tell him that it was outdoor plants that were, that were being burned and it was not indoor? Goodness. By the way, I got like, I'm glad you brought that up. I got a solid 10 to 12 comments, uh, mostly positive, but 10 to 12 that were like, why wouldn't you give it to the vets? Oh, you're just burning good weed. I'm not an idiot. We didn't burn good weed. That's all I'll say on the matter. Uh, and, you know, my final comeback was anybody who wants can smoke as much as they wanted that in so much as they uh, sign a waiver. But uh, yeah, I mean, we, we didn't want to say like this is the boofiest, expiredest, moldiest uh shit on the planet so uh you know that we're 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 making a a point but just so in case anybody wonders if it was good weed yes we would have given it to the vets or some other good uh charity so i knew that i knew that's what was that's why that's why i was uh downwind i knew that was probably what was up can we, can we get can we get one quick uh, weed for the people enthusiastically from you elliot before we before you sign off here weed for the people <laughs> yeah. All right. That's going on the sound bites. Okay. We need to keep moving, though. Thank you so much, Elliot. Up next you, is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self proclaimed dopest dad alive is here to encourage other dope dads. Find him on TEDx or at one of his Canavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. Looking forward to your headline, Rico. What you got? All right, so mine is Weedmap Super Bowl TV ad for cannabis rejected by NBC report says. It's coming out of MJ Biz and Ad Week. So since our very own Shalina Panu uh, broke the news yesterday on that fantastic Weedmap's broccoli commercial, I've seen just, it just about everywhere. The commercial had everything, censorship, racism, innuendo, wellness. It was a marketing master play by Weedmap's attacking the aggressor head-on, leading up to a week of hyped-up junk food and alcohol commercials, each slotted to pay $6 million each for ad space with the biggest TV event of the year. But it made me even more curious about um, about the old matter with big stories like this um, when the follow-up headlines began running, like MJ Biz digging a little deeper into the details of Weedmap's said reje- rejection. The Super Bowl's broadcaster, NBC TV, made the final judgment against ill-fated Weedmap's commercial last year, according to Adweek. It didn't promote buying cannabis. It doesn't specifically mention Super Bowl uh, LVI either, even though it was time specifically for the big game. So why was it rejected? Weedmap's chief operating officer, Wanho Feiyu, said the answer was a hard no. They wouldn't even entertain the conversation. In a press release yesterday, Weedmap's technology... um, 
which is Weedmap's parent company, said that the commercial addressed the current advertising restrictions imposed on legal cannabis businesses and brands for marketing their products and services. Weedmap's CEO, Chris Beals, released a statement saying, there's an irony of the fact that the biggest night for advertising will feature an array of consumer brands in regulated industries from beverage, alcohol, and sports betting, yet legal cannabis retailers, brands, and businesses have been boxed out. I think Beal's statement did not go far enough. Everybody's tiptoeing around the elephant in the room that is Big Pharma. Speaking of elephants, Jason Beck covered the news last week that NFL's drawing a $1 million halfpenny from their $309 billion revenue bucket to research, quote-unquote research, cannabinoid effects as an opioid alternative. Follow the money, people. Big Pharma has has not been cleared to run a Super Bowl commercial since 2017 in a not-so-subtle PR effort run by the league to tone down their visible support during the opioid crisis on the biggest stage. However, if you watch pro football on TV, every game, every week, Leading up to the Super Bowl is littered with these commercials. It seems every third commercial is for erectile dysfunction, depression, skin disease treatment, birth control, or whatever the targeted game-watching demographic is. A quick Google search will show you $9 billion was spent on Big Pharma M&A last year, and Common Sense would tell you a good chunk of that was going to NFL games, right? Not so much. The most comprehensive breakdown that I was able to find was from sportsbusinessjournal.com, which claimed $6.8 billion was spent on commercials in 2021. And guess what was missing? Let's run through it. Cell phone, insurance, and car company ads dominated the list of top spenders. $72 million from Honda at the bottom, $234 million from Verizon at the top. Where are the pharmaceuticals? Is it that far-fetched to assume the NFL didn't want cannabis conversation to overshadow their own efforts to silently keep talk, uh, taking major dollars from Big Pharma? They say that they're trying to change. And if Weedmap's ad was run, not in concert with their own messaging or not coming from Big Pharma, does this not take the power of owning the narrative out of their own hands? I think we need to follow the money closely on this one, and it's 100% my own speculative theory, and not anyone, else, not anyone else's, but I would not be surprised if we found out down the line Lowell Farms banned Bella Thorne commercial three years ago, as well as this week's Weed Maps Broccoli ban ad um, weren't blocked because of NBC's verbal, not written, verbal policy for not accepting any advertisements for cannabis or cannabis-related businesses. I mean, Colorado cannabis retailer LiveWell has been successfully airing ads since last April on on their NBC affiliate. So that's all bullshit. I think we should be asking why the big pharma ad data has been being hidden. And wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if the answer is tied to the cannabis ad embargo. This is Rico Lamit, Dopest Dad on the Street, reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. And I'd love to hear y'all's thoughts on this one. Back to you, Susan and Nicole. Wow. By, by rejecting the ad, I think... Weed Maps received a ton more coverage than they might have received had it aired, to be honest. Exactly. <laughs> it's just anything is better than those horrible Patrick Mahomes ads where he can't read a line and deliver it. So there's actually two different PR firms that have utilized the NFL and Super Bowl and also stadium namings um, in cannabis PR stunts. Uh, Native Roots about five years ago put a thing out that they were trying to um, get Sports Authority Field to be called Native Roots Field. And no way in fucking hell did they have enough money to do it. But they definitely got so much press from that interactivity. Um, I'm curious that this might just be, you know, 
Weed Maps is brilliant PR people getting that attention out there. You know, I do think that regardless to whether or not they actually intended to get the commercial, I think the conversation being started is great. Um, but, you know, here here we go, giving Weed Maps a little bit more free advertisement, right? For sure. It's earned media all the way versus spending how much, how many millions to actually get the add-on. I'd like to hear from Dr. Felicia, uh, and we're over time, so uh, we'll move on. Right, right quick. Um, I agree with Rico. Anytime you're talking about cannabis, Big Pharma is always in the room. It's so much so that we are, as physicians, encouraged to make cannabis the last resort. We can't prescribe other things. Uh, We can't prescribe cannabis first. We have to make that the last resort. All right. Well, since we are at time on that headline, we'll go ahead and hop, I hope, to Liz Rogan. Liz Rogan is a biodynamic biologist, botanist, and cannabis health liaison, as well as our pinup girl. What do you have for us today, Liz? Thank you, Nicole. Greetings, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. My story today comes from the Boston Globe by Dan Adams. The headline reads, MGH claims breakthrough in detecting marijuana impairment. Scientists at Massachusetts General Hospital, which is MGH, announced that they've developed a new non-invasive technique that can reliably tell the difference between people who are truly impaired by cannabis and those who have used it recently. This announcement comes amid intensified debate over how how to police stone driving in the wake of cannabis legalization. Governor Charlie Brown is calling for a crackdown But critics question the extent of the problem and warn that existing impairment tests are flawed. MGH researchers avoid previous methods of impairment like blood or saliva tests that originated from alcohol, and they choose a direct approach, instead looking directly into the brain to see the oxygenation of hemoglobin levels using functional near-infrared spectroscopy, which is abbreviated as FNIRS. This is a portable device that looks like a skull cap, and it shines light into the brain looking at the reflection. They found significantly higher levels of oxygenated hemoglobin in subjects um, in subjects who ate the placebo and didn't get too high from the THC-infused edible. So I just want to back up and mention that they are using a THC-infused edible for this research. Dr. Eden at Evans, who is overseeing the research, said the impaired brain becomes more active but less efficient at processing, so the body gives it priority and sends more oxygen. They used a computer algorithm to spot the differences in oxygenated hemoglobin between those who were deemed high and those who were not. He yielded false positives ten subjects and correctly guessed which were impaired in about 76% of the time. This is significant improvement over existing techniques and a figure that researchers believe they can boost substantially with further refinements. The scan results lend further proof to a wave of recent studies indicating that there is little, if any, connection between a given dose of THC, uh, the level of cannabis metabolites in blood or saliva at the given time of use, and a particular level or even likelihood of impairment. This shows that traditional blood and saliva tests are barely more accurate than a coin toss at detecting impairment. The MGH study also raises troubling questions about the validity of another existing technique for measuring cannabis impairment. Examinations by so-called drug recognition experts, who are police officers who have trained to detect impairment through a series of observations and simple physical tests like those used to access, those used to assess suspected drunk drivers. The researchers initially planned to compare their experimental results to verdicts rendered by the drug recognition experts, which proponents hail as the gold standard for assessing drug impairment. Officers across the country, including dozens in Massachusetts, have been using the system for years to evaluate suspect impaired drivers and present evidence against them in court. 
They quickly disregarded the DRE protocol as a reference after their experiments showed it produced false positives in a staggering 34% of the subjects who were not deemed impaired by the clinical and self-assessments. The DRE-trained observers even incorrectly flagged 20% of the volunteers who had eaten the placebo and were verifiably sober. As uh, Baker last year proposed a bill that would significantly expand the deployment of drug recognition uh, expert-trained officers and require courts to accept their testimony as experts. Uh, Earlier this month, a key state House committee did send the proposal to study, likely ending its hopes of passage during the current legislative session. This more objective approach will prove it can sidestep those limitations, though they stressed it is not ready to be deployed. One critical next step will be testing the system on a larger group of volunteers, in part to ensure that other drugs or health conditions don't produce scan results that might mimic those of impaired people. Researchers will also need to develop a slightly smaller or more rugged FNIRS device suitable for roadside use, perhaps one that um, sends readings or cell phone data network um, to a remote computer for analysis. But officers need a better tool. This is just preliminary, sorry, preliminary research, and many other factors can affect hemoglobin oxygenation. Dr. Timothy Naimi of Boston Medical Center said that MGH's approach was promising, but would need to be extensively validated on future studies that included driving simulations instead of leaning in on self-assessments of impairment. He said there could be a host of legal issues about this. In practice, the reliability would have to be really good to use as a basis of a court proceeding. I found this really interesting. I know we have Chris Eggers here today, I believe, and as a former drug recognition expert, or at least uh, in... uh, you know, well-versed in that area. I'd love to hear what you have to say. So this is Liz Rogan. I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Liz, super interesting article. Thank you for sharing. Yes, I was, uh, I completed the drug recognition expert training prior to leaving law enforcement, uh, more so out of curiosity than anything else. But um, less than 2% of police officers in California hold that designation, and they do not talk about the false positives in that training. Um, and so I really appreciate you bringing that study up as well. Um I know I'm getting the, the music false positive. Yeah, the officers had a 36% false positive uh, rate um, showing who was impaired and who was not versus the spectroscopy was only 10% false positive. So I think it has some future use possibly, but still, if an officer is administering the spectroscopy, then a person could get anxious and start using up a lot of oxygen in their brain and, and come across as being impaired. So I, I, I still think it's going to be kind of shaky, even with officers administering it, because they do produce false positives, just because people are afraid of getting shot. Thank you, Dr. Felicia. That, great points. And yeah, that, that study... Showing the false positive, I think, is super important to put out there. So it might just be bro science. I don't know. But while my family was down and out, I just took my I just I took 10 rapid antigen tests in 11 days, all negative after locked in the house, nursing a sick wife and baby. And the only thing I could think of that protected me right before all of that, I smoked the best weed in the world with the industry's longest continuously running retailer in the state of Cannabis News Hour's very own anti-racist <laughs> Joe Rogan, Jason Beck. Dr. Good morning. Hope everyone's having a fantastic day today. Today, my story comes out of Colorado, where Colorado employers would no longer be able to fire their workers for using cannabis if a new bill passes. Colorado employers would be prohibited from denying employment 
to or firing workers because of their off-the-clock cannabis use, either medical or adult use, under a measure introduced last week at the State House. House Bill 1152 would also require employers to let their workers consume medical cannabis while on the job. The legislation would include exemptions for uh, workers whose jobs are in dangerous fields or require fire motor or require fine motor skills, such as uh, positions involving the use of heavy machinery. Marijuana is legal in Colorado, said State Representative Brianna uh, Titone and our Arvana an Arvana Democrat and prime sponsor of the bill. And what people do in their spare time doesn't impact their work. It shouldn't really be a problem for them. They should be able to enjoy the legal things that we have here in Colorado and not be penalized for it. The bill seeks to answer a workplace question that has been swirling in Colorado since voters passed Amendment 64 in 2012, legalizing the sale and use of adult-use cannabis. Most states that have legalized medical or adult-use cannabis leave their question over how to handle employees' marijuana use up to employers, according to the National Conference of State Legislatures. Titone and her co-prime sponsor of the bill, uh, Representative Eddie Houghton, Democrat of Boulder, think that, think that shouldn't be the case. The whole idea is to signal to these businesses, communities, and employers that because we have legalized cannabis, we should be following the same laws and rules that apply to alcohol and prescription drugs, Houghton said. She also pointed out that medical cannabis generally comes in the form of a CBD product, not a THC product, which I personally totally disagree with, but who cares about that? The legislation was introduced on Friday, and Hooten said she is still uh, talking to the businesses and labor communities about it. Uh, major opposition hasn't cropped up yet, but it's likely that employers who have drug-free workplace policies will push back on a measure. A similar bill was rejected back in 2020. Well, Colorado, I wish you luck on passing this bill. I think it'd be a great step uh, forward. I don't often say that about Colorado bills, but this one uh, at, at the surface I like and, and do support. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Colorado got something right. Fuck that place. Man. That's all I got. That's all. <laughs> Nicole, I thought I thought you were going to talk about like California and the, and the, and their one beer law at lunch and how that correlates oh, with that's this. Not just California, there's like a bunch of states that have a regulation in regards to like you are allowed to have one beer. Like that's I think something that you know at the end of the day when we're talking about somebody's medicine, this should be a normal practice. Um, the state of Oregon actually under their medical regulations allows for you to consume as a medical patient on property as long as you're alone. So like you can go hot box a fucking closet in Oregon by yourself um, compliantly. So, you know, cool. Get it together, Colorado. This sounds like a great idea and maybe somebody will want to come visit again, i.e. myself. Probably not. I think this is great uh, movement forward as we've seen in New York State and other states they are doing this more. But also, I'm sure you guys all remember at least a few years ago, there was someone who had a real medical condition. I think like cerebral palsy or something was working for a big web company and, and lost their job because of cannabis use. So this is great to hear. It's moving forward to protect patients and consumers. Yeah, I, I believe the article actually referenced that uh, Liz. Um, it was it was a, a dish a network a dish network employee who originally filed that case. But there definitely is still going to be a, a decent amount of barriers in regards to the type of job that you have and the insurances that you're able to get because of different you know requirements. So it's not going to be every job for sure. It's not just going to be like a free for all. But I mean, at the end of the day, this is it's a medicine, and the idea that we should tell somebody that they can't consume a medicine and have a job is like fucking insane. And you know, and, and all other. Med- 
medications in the world would be considered illegal. So this is, you know, uh, something that we need to get on as, as a nation. Before the All right. Ride. Up next, we got Lara DeCara. Mm-hmm. Lara is a fighter for love is love, co-founder of the International Cannabis Bar Association and the current chair of the Bar Association of San Francisco's Law Section and also one of our co-producers here at the show. Lara, what do you have for us today? Hi, everybody. Um, I have another story about Delta hate. Um, my story today, uh, let me know if you can't hear me. I know I always have problems. I'm trying to like up the You're basically the yelling this stuff. morning, Laura. It's great. Awesome. <laughs> Sorry, guys. So anyway, the, the article is, as hemp THC sales boom online and by mail, cannabis industry braces for crackdown. It's by Kristen Nichols, who's the hemp editor for MJ Biz. And, and the article is a it acts as though this sort of, you know, Delta 8 hemp product was some sort of like out of left field surprise for everyone involved in the um, industry and the legislature, um, which I think is a little ill-informed, but it's an interesting article in the way that it runs down sort of with the rise of Delta 9 and Delta 8 THC products have in common and sort of what the industry is experiencing in and kind of grappling with these two parallel lanes that we're in right now. And it starts off, the rise of Delta 9 THC products derived from hemp, commonly sold online and shipped across state lines with little of the taxes or the safety requirements faced by quote-unquote marijuana producers, she says, has the cannabis industry bracing for tighter state and federal limits on intoxicating hemp products. She goes on to quote a couple of producers in the industry. Um, Being on the hemp side of the regulation, one is quoted as saying, we are able to operate in markets that are currently underserved due to lack of regulations, (laughs) said Chris Fontes, who's the CEO of Trojan Horse Cannabis. It's located in Commerce City, Colorado. An interesting review of the Trojan Horse Cannabis website um, boasts a legal opinion. Like They post their lawyer's legal opinion um, out of Salt Lake City. Some lawyer wrote an opinion about the legality of their products. It's, it's pretty fascinating, bold stuff. Anyway, um, so the, the article goes on about the D8 boom and um, how it took so many operators by surprise. And then it's prompted a number of hemp operators to see a potential in a, a cannabinoid that they had previously downplayed. Um, this, the advocates were seeing... Uh, the public clamoring for THC products over CBD products. And that got folks in the hemp space, according to the author, wondering why not simply concentrate and promote the Delta 9 THC that occurs naturally in their hemp products. After all, a five gram gummy could contain 15 milligrams of hemp derived Delta 9 THC and still meet the federal requirements of being a legal item of no more than 0.3% THC by dry weight. Uh, She discusses at Cornbread Hemp, which is a CBD manufacturer in Louisville, Kentucky, executives saw the Delta 8 THC trend as evidence that some consumers were looking for intoxication of hemp products and that they weren't opposed to hemp-derived THC. So by 2021, they had moved the listing of THC to the very front of their packaging to highlight it, and their sales increased. According to Enjoy Hemp, uh, a CBD manufacturer in Miami, they had the same reaction to their products. 
So the article goes on to discuss the the differential in taxes that are paid in the two markets. I think it's a fascinating article, and I think that um, I'm getting Oscars, so I'll shut up now. But I think you should you should definitely read it. The legal opinion is in the spreadsheet. If people are super fans and they want to go to the spreadsheet, um, or just you know go to that website and check it out, it's kind of fascinating. My name is Laura DeCaro, reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour, and I'm glad you could hear me today. Yay! Thank you so much, Laura. <laughs> We're going to do a quick a quick relight. You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers, not those of any other speaker in State of Cannabis or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and State of Cannabis and its speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or any other authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationships. The sponsorship of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expressions of any of the opinions whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any of its speakers. Viewer discretion advised. All right. I'm going to do my story next. So things are not okay in Oklahoma. From Benzinga yesterday, uh, the headline reads, Oklahoma governor implies voters didn't fully comprehend medical marijuana bill they unanimously approved. First of all, headline alert, if the vote was unanimous, that would be a huge story, right? I don't think it was unanimous. But let's give them the benefit of the doubt. So a lot of people wanted legalization in Oklahoma. Check. Oklahoma's Republican Governor Kevin Stitt implied on Monday that voters didn't quite understand the ballot initiative they overwhelmingly approved in 2018 to legalize medical marijuana. Or perhaps they were misled. The governor said he found the ballot to be the ballot. He found the ballot to be misleading, and it has tied our hands as we regulate the industry. Or, as I said to the folks writing Prop 64 in California, the voters don't read the fucking bill. All they're voting on is legalizing weed. Take your polls, your consultants, your surveys, and shove them up your greedy asses. Come on. Okay, back to the story. The governor reported, pointed to the relatively low cost of obtaining cannabis business license, noting that without a cap on marijuana operators, the market has expanded at an unsustainable rate. Quote, Oklahoma charges just $2,500 for a commercial license. Stitt said, noting that California charges far more, in fact, up to 72 times more. Quote, as a result, we have seven times the growers in California with just 10% of the people, end quote. Then the governor moved on to neighboring Arkansas. Next door, quote, next door in Arkansas, they have eight growers. We have 8,300, the governor said. Quote, while we can't change the past, we can learn from it and improve our future. We're getting the right leaders in place and untying their hands to enforce the laws. Stitt said he directed law enforcement to crack down, on, crack down hard on the black market, quote, adding that drug cartels, organized crime, foreign bad actors have no place in the state of Oklahoma. Boo. <laughs> I, I mean, I was just putting this in our own back channel. I think it's crazy how all these red states conservative leadership, they claim to be people first, yet the voters are not fit to know what the fuck they're voting for. It makes no sense. Like, you you want to be states first, but uh, you want to run your own country within your own borders. Yeah, I, well, I, I, I don't get it. Well, clearly, I mean, the only thing he's right about is people don't understand what they are voting for. But that that's it. 
That's the only thing he's they, they seem to understand what they were voting for when they vote that the, the bullshit governor's in the office, though, right? <laughs> yeah, sure. I'm sure that's when they really get it. I mean, the thing is, yeah. don't you agree with people, Susan, though, that like people literally just click the boxes and people don't know half of what they're voting for? And like nobody actually reads that. Like I'd yeah. say like less than 5% of people actually read that fucking book that gets sent to you. And I mean, I, I do my best to try to make it through, but I'm not going to lie. I get about a third of the way through it and I still click the fucking boxes. And I just like looking back at it and I'm like, God, it is. I should just not click mm-hmm. the box at all. Don't do anything. And then like, I don't know. Is that the right answer? Right. Yeah, but, but that is not the right answer. Like, you need to vote. But if you look at like, like South Dakota, was it ninety two percent? Ninety two percent of people click that box in South Dakota, but Christy Nome like, seems to know better than they do, right? The other challenge is that people like the way these this legislation is written, these people don't know because it's not clear. So I mean, it's like you're blaming it on the people, but also if you write the law, whose fault is it? Right. And even those of us who read it, I mean, you know, a lot of us voted for it simply as a way to, you know, get something in the door. Look, I burn it all down. (laughs) Burn it down. I I agree that, you know, people don't read, but at the same time, you know, they, for him to try to now like restrict the market and the people's right to participate in the market, I think is, is non-Republican. It's, more of a Democrat playbook than a Republican playbook in my mind. Fuck it, Republicans. <laughs> it's for the people. <laughs> All right. D-cream or bust. Well, or bust, y'all. All right. All right. Uh, up next, uh, we <laughs> have... Oh, sorry. It's your turn. My bad. All right. So up next, she's the first black female cannabis sommelier, author of the Metaphysical Cannabis Oracle Deck, cannabis and wellness coordinator for the live music festivals, and CMO of the deliciously vegan edible brand Fruit Slabs. Up next is the marvelously multi-talented Maggie Mae Wilson. What you got for us this morning, Maggie? Full name. (laughs) Thanks, Rico. Uh, My story today comes from Marijuana Moment. DEA faces backlash over proposed scheduling of five psychedelic compounds. This story is by Kyle Yeager. The Drug Enforcement Administration is moving to place a series of psychedelic compounds into the most strictly prohibited list of controlled substances, and advocates and researchers are making clear their opposition to the proposal. About 90 people have submitted official feedback to the agency so far after the scheduling proposal was published in the Federal Register last month. The public comment period ends on February 14th, so you have about six days if you want to get more comments in. Advocates and researchers are challenging the logic behind the DEA's planned band of five tryptamines, 4-O-D-I-P-T, 5-M-E-O-A-M-T, 5-M-E-O-M-I-P-T, 5-M-E-O-D-E-T, and D-I-P-T. The agency wants to plan or to place each of these psychedelic compounds in the Schedule 1 under the Controlled Substances Act, the same category as drugs like heroin, marijuana, and LSD. The DEA said that it took into account research and recommendations from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, which found that, quote, these substances are being abused for their hallucinogenic properties, unquote, God forbid, as well as its own eight-factor analysis before it's made into the scheduling scheduling proposal. The DEA said in last month's notice that agencies have identified cases of hospitalization related to the use of two of the tryptamines. It was only able to cite one death, where one of the compound, where one of the compounds 5-MeO-AMT was found in the person's body in addition to alcohol and an antidepressant. The DEA acknowledged that, quote, it is unclear what role the 5-MeO played in the death, but 
That's the only death that they have reported in the past 15 years for that trip to for that trip to Maine. In general, advocates have been critical of DEA scheduling decisions. The fact that cannabis and other ethogenic substances remain Schedule I drugs, meaning the agency determined it has no medical value and a high abuse potential, has particularly called into question the DEA's judgments in these matters. A person who identified themselves as a military veteran said he believes, quote, these compounds should be kept legal so they can be researched. Matt Bigot, a neuroscientist and CEO of the pharmatech company Tactogen, also weighed in on the agency's proposal. He noted that the HHS provided DEA with its analysis of these compounds a decade ago, which, raises the, which quote, raises the question of whether their scheduling is in response to the increased interest in psychedelic medicine. Meanwhile, a Seattle doctor specializing in end-of-life care filed a formal petition with the DEA last week challenging the government's Schedule I classification of psilocybin, the main psychoactive component in psychedelic mushrooms. Congress and 41 states have adopted right-to-try laws, which allow patients with terminal conditions to try investigational medications that have not been approved for general use. Lawmakers said the DEA, quote, has failed to abide by the law. DEA has increased production quotas for the production of certain psychedelics like psilocybin in an effort to promote research, but its scheduling decisions have continued to represent obstacles for scientists. And the agency is currently facing criticism from advocates and researchers over the proposal to place several psychedelic substances in Schedule One under the CSA. I know lots of people that are doing very good, like integration, psychedelic, addictive recovery therapy all over the country, especially in Texas right now, who are using 5-MeO. And they are having incredible results with their patients who are recovering addicts. So I think that this is just the DEA continuing to overstep their boundaries, but I would love to hear any other comments. This is Maggie Wilson reporting from Long Beach for the State of Cannabis. What are the, so the 5-MeO I know, what are the actual um, street names of the other drugs that they're trying to, I mean, do you know? Because I just like long chemical names and I'm just like, I, I'm not as hip on what those drugs that you named are. The 5-MeO, that's the, that's the combo, right? That's the... Right, right. It's right. all the toad. Yeah, it's, it's all, yeah. Uh, they're all tryptamines. They're tryptam yeah, they're all tryptamines. So they're going to be all hallucinogenic drugs that are, you know... That are they, if I was like buying this on the street, I know if I bought combo, that's five MEO DMT, but what are the, what about the other ones? What is doing? I didn't what, go into the, the, I didn't type into my Google search. What are these? Other I drugs? did. And I can't <laughs> find it. And, I, I mean, I did look up the Wikipedia to see them, but I didn't find much more about them. I, the fact that they're just psychedelic drugs and that they're, you know, a, they can be abused for hallucinogens is just like, come on, give us a break. Let the people get high. Uh, we need Oops. a disclaimer from the attorneys right now, please. Is it, isn't, the, isn't the DEA saying that they're going to uh, deschedule fentanyl? No, they're going to reschedule fentanyl. Oh, Weren't man. They, wasn't there something with the DEA and they're asking for comments and there was a comment period? Is that related to the story at all, Maggie? Yes, the comment period ends on February 14th. So if you click on the article, you can find the link to submit public comment before the 14th. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, great way to spend Valentine's Day telling the DEA what you think about psychedelics. Um, and up next, we have Eric Hislareda. Eric is an award-winning journalist, brand-building content ninja, and a freedom-fighting farmer's friend. What do you have for us today? 
Hey, Nicole. Hi, everybody. Great to be here today. Thank you for the intro. Um, my headline is from the Beard Brothers blog, and it's Cultivation Starts in Spain. So the headline is a little misleading, as cultivation has been going on in Spain for well over a 1,000 years. It was actually the Spanish who first brought cannabis to the Americas 500 years ago. But I get where the writer's going with this. The piece is forecasting that cultivation for medical patients, it's on its way. It starts like this. When you think about cannabis cultivation in Europe, which country do you think of first? France or Denmark, maybe? One country they might not have thought of is Spain. As a matter of fact, Spain and France tied for the highest cannabis usage among adults in 2019, with 11% of their populations consuming cannabis. However, Spanish laws concerning cannabis, both its usage and cultivation, are a bit confusing. Growing and using cannabis for, for personal consumption is legal, but selling cannabis is prohibited. Spain is unique in that dr its drug laws do not apply to private residents or places. Therefore, if someone grows and smokes cannabis at home, they'll be outside the reach of Spanish law. You can only get busted if you, if you consume in public or sell to others. Additionally, while smoking cannabis in public places is prohibited, there is a rising trend of private cannabis clubs. Many Spaniards have a few plants in their homes, as this is less expensive and won't catch the government's attention. And because of the climate, outdoor growing is prevalent, and three consecutive outdoor crops can be grown, especially in southern Spain. Uh, it's also possible to get uh, two successive crops from autoflowering auto seeds in northern Spain, particularly the Catalan region. Uh, since commercial medical cannabis exports began in 2020, Spain already has rule, uh, sales to three nations, 11 licensed cultivators, and two licensed manufacturers. Uh, this marks Spain as a European cannabis cannabis producing powerhouse, but it's only the beginning. While producers have more chances than ever before, and Spain is leading the way in growing commercial supply, the country has a problem of needing to adjust to accommodate the current market. Strangely, Spain disallows medical cannabis use even after decriminalizing cannabis for personal use and cultivation. So while personal use and cultivation are decriminalized in the country, Spanish doctors have no current legal avenues to prescribe cannabis to their patients. Most patients are still unable to receive almost any legal medical cannabis products. This, even though according to a recent survey, over 90% of Spaniards support the legalization of medical cannabis. And to complicate matters, Spain grows medical cannabis for other countries. Several companies there have even been granted official permission to cultivate, process, and export medical cannabis flower, but not sell them to Spaniards. However, there is hope for the medical cannabis industry in Spain, especially with a more progressive government in play. In recent years, progress was made as the Spanish Congress voted in favor of a subcommittee that will re review the effects of medical cannabis in other countries and how that could translate to Spain's medical system. I'm just going to say I hope this gets resolved sooner than later because I can't wait to return and stroll Las Ramblas with a porro on one hand and a glass of Rioja in the other. Thank you. I'm Eric for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Gracias for having me up. Eric, are you a fan of the crossfade? I don't believe in the crossfade, Rico. I've, I've perfected the art. In fact, I love pairing mezcal with the mota and uh, a good glass of Rioja, like I said, man. It works. Mes mezcalota. Mezcalota. Like exactly. That. It works. It's the Spain sober instead of California sober. <laughs> there is no sober in Spain. I don't know if you've, how much time you spend there. There's, there's, always, some, there's always something to drink or eat. Sign me up. We should do a group. We should do a group trip. I'll be your tour guide. I'll take Spanibus, you some favorite spots. Spanibus 2023. Oh my God, that would be amazing. 
Are you going yep. to Spanibus this year, Eric? I'm not, man. I, I think you mentioned you were going, so I'm highly jealous, Jason. Jason, do you get to take a private plane to, to Spanibus? Um, we'll wait and see. <laughs> I mean, I am I'm going to Colorado today. Sorry, guys, my Oscar music isn't working. We need to keep smoking the news. Let's keep, let's keep. He is the CEO of Deliciously Vegan and Kosher Edible Brand Fruit Slabs. And his beer game is so very strong. Also a cannabis and intellectual property attorney, repping Long Beach to the fullest. Up next, we've got Brandon Dorsky. What you got for us this morning, my man? Thanks for having me. Today, my headline comes from Law 360, as reported by Katrina Pereira. It's Nevada pot shop fined $45,000 after single sale went over limit. That's right. The Nevada Cannabis Compliance Board fined Nevada Organic Remedies LLC for a self-reported sale that was over the state's prescribed legal limits. Because on May 7th, an employee of the shop completed a transaction that exceeded the prescribed limits for a single sale which are one ounce of cannabis flower in Nevada or three and a half grams of concentrate, an eighth for the metrically challenged. Organic Remedies' internal investigation determined that its sales limit safeguard had been inadvertently turned off prior to the sale taking place. So the shop informed the Cannabis Compliance Board that this occurred and that it has improved the employee training and counseling, including advising their staff that they cannot solely rely on electronic software and safeguards to ensure they are acting compliantly. The Compliance Board also did their own audit and determined Nevada Organic Remedies were being transparent and decided to enter into a settlement negotiation with them. And they approved a settlement and reduced the shop's civil penalty from $62,500 to $45,000 for the self-reported incident. And on January 29th, a stipulation and order was signed confirming the settlement. The board said the mitigating factors that led to the reduction in their civil penalty were the self-reporting of the events, the swift remedial action to address how the violations occurred, and their negotiating in good faith without first requiring the judicial process to force them to the negotiating table. Neither party was willing to comment on the article. You know, I think it's great when a fine gets reduced, but when you only had one violation and you self-report, I think the governing body should really take that into consideration and maybe not fine you at all. By fining, you know, it might suggest to some parties we might be better off not self-reporting and not getting caught. I think all states need to take a look at that. And when an actor is self-reporting that they were non-compliant and that they've already affirmatively taken remedial steps, that you want those people to be the business parties serving cannabis in your state that are self-policing and self-regulating. So don't punish them for calling themselves out. This is Brandon Dorsky reporting for the state of cannabis. Yeah. 100%. Totally. 200%. Isn't this the second story we've had recently about something like this, Brandon? Sorry, say that again? I thought we had a story just recently about another place that kind of uh, got fined for admitting something. And it yeah. seems like this is horribly precedent-setting, and why would anyone want to be compliant? Yeah, that was, that was, the, was, that was the one that I covered from uh, Las Vegas, I think, like, last week. Same exact thing. They brought it down to 45000 They originally wanted to fine them sixty-two. It would have been real rad if I would have gotten a $45,000 fine on the fact that we were following a law um, that our lawyer said was correct on what the city considered overselling to specific customers. It would have been real rad if we would have been given the opportunity for a fine rather than felonies and losing all of our businesses. Right on. That's why I was, I was sad that you couldn't comment on that story, too. Like, Nicole. fuck me, man. Like, that's, it, I would have taken a $45,000 fine 45 fucking times rather than that F and, you know, losing all of our businesses. 
For sure, Nicole, but still the cannabis industry is still treated so much more harshly than any other business. Sure. So while that's true, it's drastic this fine. to find somebody then to give them the opportunity, which the, until we deschedule, they could do the alternative, which is turn them over to the feds and literally charge them for everything under federal charges. That is literally an option. If you break one fucking law on a state level, they can flip you over to the federal government and charge you with everything on a federal level until we deschedule or bust. Yeah, so that, that the the ladder that you just presented there is the bust. A hundred percent, absolutely. Uh, well, we are at time on that headline. Super important and interesting bit of information. And uh, sorry, I got so many fucking opinions on that, but uh, wear my f like a fucking scarlet letter. It feels like. Um, and up next, we have Chris Eggers. Chris Eggers is a cannabis security consultant and the CC Security Solutions founder, uh, former passer, former reader of your Miranda turned passer of the reefer. What do you have for us today? Good morning, Nicole. My article today comes out of the New York Times. The headline reads, woman, air quotes, tricked to believe she was a DEA, DEA agent trainee, officials say. Wow. Okay, so suspicions arose last week when Sergeant Matthew Jacobson of the Portland Police Bureau in Oregon saw a man and woman standing near a silver Dodge Charger with red and blue emergency lights and tactical tactical vest in the uh, in its trunk with DEA police patches on them. Sergeant Jacobson asked if they were federal agents and uh, with the DEA, according to the federal complaint. The man, Robert Edward Golden, replied that they were indeed quote feds, according to the complaint. It is not exactly clear. What it was about the pair that first attracted the sergeant's attention, but on the night on, on February 1st, but authorities later learned that Mr. Golden, 41, was an imposter who had tricked the woman into believing that she was training to be a DEA agent herself, according to the complaint filed Thursday in the U.S. District Court of Oregon. Mr. Golden had duped the woman, who was not named in the complaint, for about one year. He gave her a DEA badge to use on ride-alongs, which uh, they don't do at night, uh, when... He, and he would take her to go speak with homeless people and try to get them to turn into, quote, confidential informants. And he would speak about other colleagues like Anderson and Luis in his uh, local DEA office. Now, Morgan T. Barr, an actual DEA agent in Portland, said that in the complaint, there are several discrepancies between Mr. Golden's portrayal of the profession. The agency does not provide ride-alongs and had no Anderson or Luis working in its district office. Mr. Golden was charged with impersonating a federal agent. The woman was not charged at all. Um, Mr. Golden's lawyer, Michael Benson, could not be immediately reached for comment uh, as of Sunday. The case was reported by the Daily Beast and the Oregonian on Friday. Sergeant Jacobson, who could not be reached on Sunday, found more items in Mr. Golden's possession. Um, <laughs> this is wild. He had uh, an AR-15 style rifle that was later determined to be a BB gun, handcuffs, badges, and holsters. Mr. Golden told authorities that he had fake DEA patches, which he said he purchased on websites like eBay and Amazon. Um, he said that he and the woman were into cosplay, and that's why he had them. As for the Dodge Charger with emergency red and blue lights, um, Mr. Golden told authorities that he wanted people to believe that he and the woman uh, were agents so that people in their complex wouldn't bother them. He told investigators that he used the red and blue lights, which were inside the car, to, quote, to get through traffic faster, according to the complaint. The woman told investigators that she attended school for criminal justice and had been given credentials by Mr. Golden. He had taken her to uh, shooting range and once claimed that he had to put someone in handcuffs on his way to work. Mr. Barr, who could not be raised for comment, said and complained that he believed Mr. Golden had, quote, tricked the woman into believing that she was, in fact, a DEA agent and that uh, she was training to be a DEA agent. This is this is wild. Uh, on Friday, Judge Russo released Mr. Golden 
after imposing a number of conditions, including that he maintain a full-time job, limit his travel to Oregon unless granted approval by the court, and participate in counseling and a mental health evaluation. Uh, that's a lot to digest there. My name is Chris Eggers, and I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Curious what uh, folks have to think or say about that. I want to know what cosplay is. I don't know what that is. <laughs> yes, yeah, Susan. Cosplay. cosplay. Dress up like different things, and it's it's a for the most part sexual. There's definitely cosplay that is not sexual, but um, it has things like video game characters, etc. Yeah, you could be so a. Cartoon character, a video game character, you can be just like some sort of arbitrary thing. Like there's there's all kinds of crazy cosplay. And it evolves into like things as deep as like furries and stuff, but cosplay is being something else. Would you call this cosplay? Susan, you gotta go to a Comic Con after party. <laughs> yes. Okay. Or just right, we, go we, to Comic Con. <laughs> we gotta we gotta keep going because we're short on time. You always go to the next one. So she is uh, the she's no oh, damn it. <laughs> <As long> as, <laughs> the Florida-based entrepreneurial boss runs the ultimate cannabis lifestyle brand, Black Buddha Cannabis, and is the founder and CEO of Minorities for Marijuana. Roz McCarthy, let's go. Get in, Rico. You're great, man. Listen, Roz McCarthy here, and I got a cool article I'm sharing with you guys. This comes from Canada, so it says Prince George one step closer to landing what could be the world's first cannabis store in an airport terminal. So I'm going to go fast, guys. Passengers flying through a small airport in Prince George, British Columbia, may soon be able to buy cannabis for their carry-on. Copilot, that's the name of the store, a cannabis company based in Langley, um, British Columbia, launched by two American-based entrepreneurs, is proposing to build what is called the first cannabis store in the world to be located inside an airport terminal in the northern city. On Monday night, Prince George City Council voted unanimously for the project to pass its public hearing stage. It still requires final approval from the city, likely this spring. There are cannabis stores in Canada and the U.S. that are close to the airport, but there is not a single store that we know of that's operating within the confines of an airport. The Prince George Airport Authority is on board with the project, calling it pioneering. If you think back to years ago, there was no liquor stores in the airport. Now there's liquor stores in the airport across the country, um, says George Gordon Duke, CEO of the Prince George Airport Authority. So, so this is an evolution. Yes, it's news, and we may all have our personal opinions on the wisdom of legalizing cannabis. It doesn't change the fact that it's a legal product allowed to be retailed with robust regulatory requirements. So I'm going down as we wrap up here um, in an email to Prince George uh, County, In January, airline pilots with over 30,000 hours of flying time said intoxicated travelers can put airplane crews and passengers at risk. They are are extremely disappointed because of the extremely disrespectful and derogatory to the entire aviation profession um, by calling the name um, co-pilot. He says, "Would you? How would you feel if you call a store cop cannabis or Mayor Munchies?" Hey, I'm Roz McCarthy reporting to you on some crazy stuff going on in Canada. What do you guys feel about having um, cannabis in the airport? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> a whole entire store. Your thoughts? Yes, please. I think Smart there'd be a Marie. lot less aggression. Yes. Oh, yeah, I think it will make flying a lot easier for some people with anxiety. The highest yeah. club. 
Absolutely. Thank you so much, everyone. We're at the uh, hour mark, so that was a really great show. If you missed any of it, make sure to catch the replay or find us anywhere you get your podcasts or on our YouTube channel a few hours after the show. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that comb through all the headlines each day to bring us just what we need to know. A big thank you to Nicole and Rico for co-producing the show and our pinup girl, Liz Rogan. Thank you, audience, for being our eyes and ears when there's news in your city, county, state, or country. Your addition to our show makes the State of Cannabis News Hour news you can trust. You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Say goodbye, Rico. I said good day. We for the people. <laughs> <laughs>